Good morning again. It's good to be with you all. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to Acts chapter 14, we'll be looking there to God's Word this morning. It's such a great thing to confess our faith as we've just done going through um, chapter 2, paragraph 1. Hopefully some of those more foreign words are starting to become less foreign to us as we've gone through this series looking at the attributes of God. Hopefully, um, our view of God over these last couple weeks has gotten bigger and more clear. The God that has revealed himself in his word, um, who is incomprehensible and yet pleased to reveal himself to us. We looked several weeks ago at God's aseity, that he is self-sufficient in and of himself, which means he is totally sufficient for us and able to supply all of our needs. We looked at God's simplicity, that he's not composed of parts, and therefore he will not fall apart on us as it were. He is immutable, unchanging in his goodness, wisdom, power, and truth. And this morning, we'll be looking at the doctrine of God's impassibility. God's impassibility, that God is without passions. Now, while most of us might not be familiar with this doctrine. I think many of us are familiar with the concept or the idea of passions, right? It's part of our everyday language. You see someone at their job, they seem really enthusiastic about it. You might say that person is really passionate about what they do. They're passionate about their job. Maybe if you watch any sports teams, if you see a coach or a player that seems really into the game or really enthused, you might say, that player showed a lot of passion. That coach showed a lot of passion. And so we are familiar with this term of passion, right? We can be passionately for something, or we can be passionately against something. But why is it important that we confess in our confession of faith that our God is without passions, right? Surely that cannot be the case. What do we mean when we say our God is without passions, that he is impassable. We see that this is a very important thing for the history of the church. It's something that has been confessed really for the last 2,000 years, but has really fallen on hard times in the last couple centuries. But what we're going to see today is that Scripture does indeed teach that our God is impassable. He is without body parts or passions. He does not suffer emotional change or fluctuation, and that, in fact, he is immutable in all of his perfections. And that his love for us, therefore, is infinite and eternal and unchanging as he is. And far from this undermining um, the suffering of Christ or contradicting somehow God's impassibility, we're going to see that it actually protects and maintains this doctrine that we will come to see in Scripture. So I'm going to read our passage for us, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look and study further this doctrine of God's impassibility. Now we pick up in Acts 14 where we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have been wrongly identified by the people of Lystra as the gods Zeus and Hermes. The people now think that because Paul has done a miracle, that they are the gods come down from Mount Olympus, the gods of Zeus and Hermes come down 
for them. And the people have even tried to offer them sacrifices, oxen and garlands. They're trying to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they are the gods of Mount Olympus. And so we see that the apostles respond to this. I'll begin at verse 14, but our main passage will be verse 15 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature, or more literally, like passions with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the truth that you've revealed to us in your holy word. We pray this morning that as we seek to understand who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be, we pray that you would give us understanding and insight into these things, that you would gird up the loins of our minds, that we might be able to discern truth from error, and that you would strengthen us, Lord. And as you are pleased to do by the power of your Spirit, you would shine the light of your word into our hearts that we might be strengthened as we seek to understand these things. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look at three different things this morning. The first thing we're going to do is look at the doctrine of impassibility. What does it mean? What do we mean when we use this word? How do we understand this language? The second thing we'll look at is objections to God without passions. And thirdly and finally, we'll look at the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ. First, we see in the doctrine of passability. Now, as I've already said, I think for most of us, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm, I'm almost confident that most of us have not heard of this word impassibility before. <laughs> most of us have not heard of this word impassibility. It's rather a new word for many of us in describing who God is. If I had to give a have to, if you had to fill out a form that was your top 10 attributes of God, chances are this probably wouldn't make the list. So what do we mean when we say that God is impassable? If you want to look at your handout with me, we've provided a short definition there. When we say that God is impassable, we're saying that our God is without passions, that he does not experience emotional change or fluctuation in any way, that he cannot be acted upon so as to suffer harm, that God is immutable and unbounded in all his perfections. And in many ways, this doctrine is built upon all the other doctrines that we've looked at in this series on God's attributes. Because God is simple and sufficient in and of himself, independent of the created order, and because God is immutable and unchanging in his being and in his perfections, therefore it follows that our God must be impassable, unable to suffer emotional change. Now, as I said before, this has been the confession of the church for the last 2,000 years. 
It's in our Baptist Confession of Faith, but we copied that from the Congregationalists in the Savoy Declaration. Who copied that from the Westminster Divines in the Westminster Confession of Faith? Who got that from the Anglicans in the 39 Articles? All This is not a Reformed doctrine. This is not even a Protestant doctrine. The Roman Catholics believe in God's impassibility. John Wesleyan believed in the impassibility of God. All confessed that God was without body parts or passions, as our confession states. But what does this mean? (laughs) Maybe you're all asking yourselves this question. Okay, what does this mean? Well, the word passion comes from the Latin word pati, P-A-T-I, the Latin word pati. It's where we get our English word patient, right? Many of us are familiar with what it means to be a patient. To be a patient is to have something happen to you. It's to undergo an action of another. We're we're all familiar with the relationship between a doctor and a patient. The doctor is the one who acts. The doctor is the agent, and the patient is the one who undergoes, right? This is why we, we maintain this even in our language, right? If someone is is, has a treatment that they're, that's happening to them, you might say that person is undergoing treatment for their illness. This language of undergoing, of patient, is still very prevalent in our day. So to be a patient is to have something happen to you. And so the same word, passion, is to have something happen to you. It is an undergoing, it is a happening to, it is a movement towards something or a movement away from something. And the reason we all know this very well is because we are all passable. We all have passions, right? All you need to do is look at a five-year-old at dinner time to understand what a passion is, right? You place ice cream before them, you're going to see passion. (laughs) You're going to see a movement towards something. If you really want to see passion, put a food in front of them that they don't like, (laughs) casserole or something like that you will see a different kind of passion, but passion all the same. A passion, technically speaking, is when something outside of us alters or affects us to go from one emotional state to another. When you smell delicious cooking, you are moved toward hunger, toward desire. When you hear a sad song or watch a sad movie, you are moved to tears or crying. Maybe you can remember the first time you saw your spouse. You were moved to the passion of love. Passions are things that move us from one emotional state to another. And as creatures, we are all passable. We are all subject to passion, susceptible to fluctuation and change. Emotional states that overtake us suddenly. Unexpected moods that come over us. This is true of all creatures. This is also the case with many of the pagan gods of mythology, right? The Greek gods are all gods of passion. They are passable deities that suffer emotional change, passions that move them from one state to another, acted upon either from within or acted upon from without. They could be moved to love or hate. They could be tricked or deceived. You read read about Greek mythology and you'll see all these things. The god gods of Greek mythology are all subject to passions. But what we're going to see is that the God of Scripture is not like that. The God of Scripture, we confess, is impassable or without passions. He is unable 
to suffer, insusceptible to emotional change or fluctuation. If we want to keep the doctor-patient analogy, God is never the patient. (laughs) He's never acted upon, but pure act. God is not divided up into different emotional states or overcome by sudden unexpected mood swings, nor does something outside of Him in creation cause Him to suffer modification or loss. God is impassable. And this is what we see reflected for us in Holy Scripture and in our passage this morning. We see in verse 15 that Paul and Barnabas had been sent out from the church at Antioch to preach the gospel of Christ to both the Jews and also the Gentiles. We see in in chapter 14 that after fleeing persecution in Iconium, they arrive at Lystra to preach the good news to the Gentiles. And we see at the beginning of verse 8 that Paul, after miraculously healing a man who was crippled from birth by the power of God, he heals this man. But we see that these pagan people begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. They deify Paul and Barnabas. We see this in verse 11. They say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. They try to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. They try to worship and serve them. They think that they are the gods of Mount Olympus, the god of Zeus and Hermes, come down to them. But we see that Paul and Barnabas are distraught by this, deeply distraught. They rend their garments. They plead with the people to stop this madness. They say in verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? Why are you worshiping us? Why are you offering sacrifices to us? You need to stop. This is not right. This needs to end. But notice the reason that Paul gives for why the people should stop worshiping the apostles. He says in verse 15, we also are men of like nature, or more literally, of like passions with you. The Greek word there is homopathos. The ESV renders it like nature, but the King James renders it like passions. We are men of like passions. And this is significant because Paul is not just saying, don't worship us because we are also men. Don't worship us just because we are not the gods of Mount Olympus. What Paul is saying is don't worship us because we are passable, just like you. Don't worship us because we are people just like you, people with passions. We are fellow patients, subject to change, subject to passions and changes. And what he's going to go on to say in the rest of verse 15 is to worship things that are passable is to worship in a vain and empty way. He says in verse 15 that you should turn from these things, turn from these vain things to serve the living God. The Greek gods, to worship a, one of the Greek gods is to worship a passable deity, one that is subject to emotional change. And he's saying these are vain things, these are empty things. Worshiping passionate, passable deities is vanity and empty. 
But the true God of Scripture, the living God, is unlike us. He is impassable. He is without passions. He's not swayed by human emotions or change. He is the one, rather, who made heaven and earth. He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. This is the God of Scripture. This is the God that is worthy of our worship. And it's so interesting because for the first 1,700 years of the church, this is what people believed about God. They believed that God was without passions. In fact, to the point where if you said, I believe in a God who has passions, they would have assumed that you believed in a pagan God. They would have assumed that you believed in the gods of Greek mythology. And sadly, this has been lost in our day. Since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, many have begun to question this historic and classical doctrine of God, either rejecting it or seeking to redefine it. And that brings us to our second point this morning, objections to God without passions. Many people have questions about this doctrine. Maybe some of these are going through your head right now. Questions like this, if God is impassable, if he cannot be acted upon by the creature, surely this means that he doesn't truly care about his creation. If God is not subject to emotional change or fluctuation, then that must mean God does not really care. If God is not altered or moved by us, then that must mean God is actually indifferent. He's apathetic. He is stoic and lifeless. One person said that to believe in God's impassibility is to render God a metaphysical iceberg, cold and lifeless, incapable of love and compassion. And unfortunately, these caricatures of impassibility have become all too common in our day. And this has caused many to come against the historic and classical doctrine of God's impassibility and substitute it for a more sympathetic and therapeutic God who feels our pain and is subject to emotional change like us, a God who is with us. And we have to be honest, again, like we were last week, at first glance, Scripture seems to say the opposite. There seems to be evidence in Scripture of passions within God. The Bible seems to describe God using passionate human language and emotions, right? We looked last week at Genesis chapter 6. It says, God regretted that he made man and it grieved him in his heart. Deuteronomy chapter 9 says, God is provoked to anger. We read Isaiah chapter 12, where it says, you were angry with me and your anger turned away. This language is all throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4 says that it is possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And so we can see language like this and we can conclude, look, God is just like us. God is just like us. He regrets decisions just like we regret decisions. He gets angry sometimes just like we get angry. And we can start to view God in this one-to-run-one relationship to the creature. And we can fail to see how the Bible uses metaphorical or analogical language about God. Just like we said last week, 
The Bible describes God as having a wing. The Bible describes God as having a right hand of power. It says here that it, got, it grieved God in his heart. Does God have a cardiovascular system? Does God have a wing? Does God have a physical right arm? No. This is all anthropomorphic language about God. It's using human features to describe the God who is incomprehensible. And so we can ask the question, does God describe himself as having body parts? The answer is yes. But does God have body parts? No. Does God describe himself in Scripture with the language of passions? Yes. Does God have passions? No. And I think in an attempt to have a God who is with us, as one pastor said, we end up envisioning a God who is like us, a God who is susceptible to change and fluctuation. Because every passion, by definition, is finite, temporal, and changeable. Our passions, as we know, come and go. <laughs> you, might be, you might feel the pull of love when you see something that you care about, but you might also be pulled away from that love. Something might drive you to anger or hatred, and you might be drawn away from that anger or hatred at a different time. But in God, His perfections are infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Sam Renahan said this, God does not have passions. He has perfections. God does not have passions. He has perfections. Because God is impassable, He does not merely possess love, as we've spoken about. He is love. He is love in infinite measure. Love in God is not something that comes upon Him from the outside. It's not something that influences Him. It's who He is. He is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, infinitely, unchangingly, and eternally. And far from this rendering God as uncaring or indifferent or unloving, impassibility actually ensures the exact opposite. God is not uncaring. He is the most caring. He is not unloving. He is the most loving. He cannot become more loving than He already is. He cannot become more caring or compassionate. He is those things eternally. Sam goes on to say, what is in us a passion is in God a perfection. Because passable love is subject to change. It can diminish. It can increase. It can go up. It can go down. But impassable love is perfect. It is infinite and it is unchanging. And we worship this God who is perfect. He is without body, parts, or passions. He is not subject to suffering or subject to change. But that brings up, I think, a very vital question that we have to ask ourselves and maybe one that's coming to our minds this morning. If God is impassable, if God is without passions, what about the passion or the suffering of Christ? Does this undermine the doctrine of God's impassibility? That brings us to our third point this morning, the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ. 
What about the incarnation, Kindle? <laughs> what about the passion and the suffering of Christ upon the cross? What about what Jesus did for sinners? Doesn't this undermine the doctrine of God's impassibility? Doesn't the passion of Christ on the cross contradict the doctrine of God without passions? Surely the suffering of the Son in the incarnation changes God. Some will even go on to say that if the Son suffered in the Incarnation, doesn't that mean that all the persons of the Trinity suffered as well? How are we to understand the passion and the suffering of Christ? And it's so important, brothers and sisters, that we understand this rightly. It's so important that we are careful in the way that we speak about the Incarnation and the suffering of Christ. Because on the surface, it does look like a contradiction without passions, the passion of Christ. Because we see, even in the Old Testament, think about Isaiah 53, this promise that one is going to come, one who is God, is going to come as the suffering servant. The one who is going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One who, as we sang this morning, will be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. This is the promise in the Old Testament of the suffering and the passion of Christ. And when we come to the New Testament, in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God takes upon Himself our very nature, both body and soul. And we see these things in the gospel that seem to contradict God's impassibility. Jesus gets hungry and thirsty. He's moved to hunger. He's moved to thirst. He even cries out on the cross, I thirst. We see Jesus grows tired and weary. He gets angry at the money changers. He weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus. He even in the Garden of Gethsemane sweats drops of blood because of the agony of his coming crucifixion. And maybe most pointedly, on the cross, he undergoes the suffering that our sin deserved, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. This is what we refer to as the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. So how is this possible? How can the one who is self-sufficient in and of himself grow hungry and thirsty? How can the one who does not change get angry and weep and sweat drops of blood? How can the one who is without passions and cannot suffer, suffer on the cross? The answer, brothers and sisters, is the Incarnation. The answer is the incarnation, the Son of God assuming our nature. One person in two distinct natures, human and divine. That the Son of God did all of these things that we just described, not according to His divine nature, but according to his human nature, the only nature that could properly grow tired, hungry, and suffer. He suffered for us as man. Our confession is very helpful here. It says that in his work of mediation, that Christ does what is proper to each nature. 
and that it is actually because of God's impassibility, because God cannot suffer, that the incarnation was even necessary. As one pastor said, if the divine nature could suffer vicariously for others, then there would be no need of an incarnate Christ. If God could suffer apart from the incarnation, there's no point of Christ coming. The Son had to assume our human nature so that He could suffer for us. Suffering in our place. Suffering in our nature as man, unchangeable in His divinity. The early church father Gregory of Nazianzus said this, I thought this was helpful, that Christ was passable in His flesh, impassable in His Godhead. Passable in his flesh, impassable in his Godhead. That the sufferings of Christ do not somehow wash back into the Trinity, into his divinity. Rather, Christ suffered for us as man. The Son remains impassable according to his deity, even as he suffers according to his humanity. Or we could say it like some of the old church fathers used to say, the Son became what He was not, true man, never ceasing to be what He always was, true God. He became what He was not, never ceasing to be what He always was. This is the, this is the glory of the incarnation. God taking on flesh so that He might suffer in our place. I love what Pastor Chuck Rennie said. He said, we are not in need of a God who suffers as God, but rather an impassable God who by suffering as a man is able to overcome suffering on behalf of man, right? This is what God has done for us in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Christ has done for sinners. He suffered in our place, condemned he stood. And in many ways, this leads us right to our application this morning, that because God is impassable, we have a great source of comfort as his people this morning. We have a great source of comfort, not only in general, but more specifically in our times of suffering, right? All of us in this room experience suffering. We all experience grief, we all experience death and illness, pain and sorrow, passions that overwhelm us, grief that seems unbearable, suffering, and things like this. But the doctrine of impassibility, the idea that God cannot be changed or suffer, is actually essential for strengthening suffering Christians. That contrary to the sympathetic and therapeutic God of modern Christianity who feels our pain and is subject to change, the classical doctrine of God's impassibility is of great comfort to suffering saints. In an ever-changing world with ever-changing suffering, as one pastor said, we can cast ourselves on the never-changing, never-suffering God. <laughs> There's change all around us. There's suffering of all different forms, but we can throw ourselves upon the God who does not change and does not suffer. Or we could say it like this, because God cannot suffer, we can go to Him 
in our suffering. (laughs) He's not going to be affected by it. He is unchanging and unsuffering. And maybe we can even get to the point where what Spurgeon said will be true for us, that we will learn to kiss the waves that throw us upon the rock of ages. The waves, the sufferings in our life, we can, we can kiss them because they throw us on to the immovable hope that we have in Christ. Our passions, our sufferings can overwhelm us, but we can run to the one who is impassable and never changes. And yet at the same time, in the person of Christ, Scripture assures us that we have a God who can sympathize with our weakness because of the incarnation. And this brings us to our second point of application, the suffering son and the sympathetic high priest. That because of the incarnation, we have an amazing hope this morning, brothers and sisters, because God did not just leave us to our own devices, but in the fullness of time, He sent forth His Son. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh. The impassable God who never suffers or grieves assumed our nature in the person of Christ so that He might be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Not by reducing His impassibility, but by manifesting His unchanging love for his people. Maybe we could say it like this. If you want to see God's impassable love, look to the passion of Christ. If you want to see God's impassable love, look to the passion of Christ. His perfect suffering for his people. His unchanging mercy and grace for the elect on display. His eternal and unconditional love for us in order that He might become our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ knows our weakness. He remembers that we are dust But because of this, we can draw near, Scripture says, to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in our time of need. But Christ came in the incarnation not only to sympathize with our weakness, but so that he might redeem us from our sins. As Athanasius says, that which has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. That if Christ did not assume our nature, body and soul, he cannot redeem us. The Son had to assume our nature with all of its properties and all the common infirmities therein, including human suffering and passions, yet without sin, so that, in order that, he might redeem us. That in many ways we can say this, our salvation depends on Christ having a true human nature. Our salvation depends on Christ having a true human nature. Christ came to take our sin-stained natures, our creaturely passions, our suffering on behalf of his people. 
so that he might redeem us both body and soul, to give us new hearts with new affections. As Augustine said, weeping that he might teach us to weep, suffering that he might teach us how to suffer well, not only as our example, but as our mediator, our redeemer, and our covenant head. But thirdly and finally, the last thing we need to see this morning is God's impassable love for his people. God's impassable love for his people. Because I think it's tempting for us to think of a God who is like us. It's tempting for us to think of a God who is like us. We can tend to think of God as passable, like us, having passions, right? That a God that is subject to change, a, a God that is swayed by various emotions. We can do this when we think about our salvation, thinking that if we do enough good things, we can somehow move him to save us or redeem us a works-based view of salvation. We can fall, or we can think that we can fall into enough grievous sins that we can cause God to change His mind about us or somehow lose our salvation. But more than just how we think about salvation, we can do this when we think about God's love for us. We can think that God's love for His people is like our love, subject to passion and change, swayed by human circumstances. But the truth of Scripture is God's love is not like our love. And that's good news, brothers and sisters. God's love is not like our love because God's love is eternal. In, it's immutable and unchanging. God loves without passion. As one pastor said, God is not passionate about you at all. And that's a good thing. <laughs> because if God was passionate about you, that would mean his love for you could change. He could, you could move him to not love you or love you more. But if God loves us like this, then we could never be sure of his promises. We could never be sure of his love for us. But if God's love for you is not something that comes upon him. It's not something caused to be in God. Rather, God's love for you is in fact his own unchanging nature. As James Dolezal said, if God loved you passionately, he would love you temporally, mutably, dependently, and creaturely. But if God loves you impassably, he loves you perfectly, unboundedly, and with the fullness of his own goodness of being. <laughs> we don't want a God who loves with our love. We don't want God's love to be anything like our love. We want his love to be infinite, eternal, and unchanging. And this is really at the heart of what we mean when we say God's love is unconditional. It's unmerited for his people. It's not based upon our loveliness. Rather, it is entirely of God's sovereign choice. And so if you ever struggle with this question of, does God really love me? Does God really care about me? Is his love for me going to change if I sin too severely? Is his love for me going to diminish? We can look to God himself, his infinite and eternal love for us in Christ. And as the theologian Gerhardus Voss said, the best proof 
that God will never cease to love us is the fact that it never began. (laughs) The best proof that God will never cease to love us is the fact that he never began. His love is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. And so we can go to him. We can trust that what he has done for us in Christ will not diminish. It will not change. God's love for his people is unchanging and immutable. And so let's praise him and thank him for his work for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are that in a world that is full of change and suffering, we can cling to the God who doesn't change and doesn't suffer. The God who is without passions, that loves us with a perfect, infinite love that never changes. And in the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son to take upon himself our nature that he might suffer as man for us, our perfect federal covenant head, the better and the last Adam who did everything the first Adam failed to do so that we might be spared. Help us this morning, Lord, to see the greatness and the glory of your impassable love for us. Would we be strengthened as we contemplate and think about these things? And would you reveal to us our great need this morning? Our only hope is being found in Christ and in his perfect life and in his perfect suffering for us. Help us this morning. Give us the eyes of faith that we might see and understand these things. And strengthen us, Lord, that we might not be people that are swayed by our passions, but that we would be immutable, sorry, that we would be unchanging and immovable as we seek to cling to you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.